this morning we're going to continue with our Victorious Living series, and I want to talk about shame. And um, the title of this is Time to Get New Clothes. <laughs> and I wanted to wear my jacket today <laughs> because it's a um, it's a jacket and it's a shirt. <laughs> it's a hybrid. It's a one. It's it can be a shirt and it can be a jacket. And sometimes as Christians, we take God's righteousness and we add something to it. So we have a hybrid covering. And that's shame causes us to cover and to hide things because we're so ashamed of it. We don't want people to know anything about our past or anything that's... Sometimes shame is a twofold thing. It's either things that we have done ourselves that causes us shame or things that have happened to us that causes us shame. So there's a two-pronged um, thing with shame, and God wants to deliver us totally from the shame of both of them. Amen? I mean, there's all things, and it's like that jacket. It can't make up its mind. It's a shirt. It's a jacket. Which one is it? Well, it's a jacket. You know? I said, well, they could have called it a dirt. Right? I mean, you could have just gone that way with it, too. But I guess jacket sounds more. And I've had more compliments on it, which I was surprised. But even strangers are like, oh, I like what you're wearing. And it's like, oh, well, it's a, it's a jacket. <laughs> but clothes says a lot about us. And um, God says a lot about coverings. You know, when Jesus was going to the cross, they stripped him of his robe. When the prodigal son came home, they put a they put a new robe on him and a ring on his finger. So covering is important. We just are in children's church, we're ministering on Joseph in his coat of many colors and how that signified that he was to be the next priest of the family when his father died. So close say a lot. And um, what we do spiritually is sometimes we try to hide and cover our shame ourselves. And it's not really necessary for us to do that because Christ has already done that. But I think many of us have that in our nagging. You know, there's always that one thing that happened to us or that one thing that we did that the devil seems to, he, he like magnifies it. Like I've said before, you can do 99 things right and the only thing that you hear in your mind is the one thing that you've ever done that was horrible and just over and pounding and we take that and we become so ashamed. And the, the definition of shame is just disgrace. We're disgraced. So we want to try not to cover it ourselves, you know, but we do. We try to cover it because we feel abnormal. We don't feel like we're like everybody else. I know, you know, my past was being molested by my dad when I was small and living in alcohol and dysfunction. In my family, I was never alcoholic. I was smart enough to see what was going on. And it's kind of funny. We just saw a picture in Facebook. It came up in the memories of my dad and mom. And I looked at it, and I blew it up. And I said, there you go, Clarence. Look, he's even got a cigarette in the picture. And my dad was one of those chain smokers. He, smoked, he must have smoked like four packs a day. And I don't know. He lived to be 78, so he... I guess his younger life, working out at the farm and everything, really helped his, his, his biology. But 
you know, we can convince ourselves that because of what's happened to us that we're abnormal, we're bad, we don't fit in, all these things, and all that is is, a, is shame and rejection and a lot of um, different dysfunctions. But the, the cause of it or the, the result of it is that we don't feel like we're accepted by God or accepted by people. And what happens with people like that is they hide and they don't, they don't participate. They don't want anybody to know anything about them because they're ashamed. And it's, it's all a ruse because it's the devil just having heyday. If the devil can isolate you, he's got you where he wants you because then he's got you all to himself. So that's why it's important. I think later on in the class we'll talk about developing root systems and how you how you root out like a plant. If it stays in a small pot, eventually it gets root bound. And the same thing with Christians. If they just stay in and they don't let any other people into their little circle, then they get root bound too. So we want to make sure that we're going to take a few examples of how people in the Bible covered their shame. But the cover doesn't remove the guilt. And this is the important part. When Jesus died on the cross, he removed all your guilt when you came to him in repentance. He already removed it all. And I, I think we're all Christians in this room. Amen? So he's already re removed all of our guilt. Why do we have to keep carrying that thing around? We don't have to keep carrying the shame of what we've done. And it's like the other classes that we've talked about where once you see it and you get free, it kind of feels funny for a while because it's, it's like, have you ever had like a tooth that was going bad and, you know, all you do is feel that tooth, feel that, then you get it taken care of and it's like, oh, I don't feel that anymore. That feels kind of strange. And it's the same with all these different things that God wants us to be free of. Once we get free of it, it's like, oh. You know, how, how do I live now because I'm not getting battered every day with all the wrong things that I did? And when those thoughts come up, you just say, nope, sorry, already forgiven, and then move on. You don't have to sit there in it. But the only thing that we can do is when we cover our shame, we have to realize the cover never stays secure, and the shame manages it to reveal itself periodically when we talk to people. Um... When, we, when we're in our quiet time, the shame does come up, and it comes up in technicolor to show us how, what bad people we are, you know, how abnormal we are. And all, that cell, all those talking things that we need to get rid of inside of our head, that we can do it today by the blood of Jesus. So we want to get rid of our shackles and just get the cloth of righteousness. Amen? So our first one, it always begins in Genesis. The problems always begin right at the beginning, amen? And this is no different. Adam and Eve attempt to hide from God in Genesis. So Genesis 1, God said, 126, And God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So we're supposed to have dominion. God created man in his image. Adam looked like God. Mm -hmm. 
We look at our own children, we can see when they resemble us. I can look at my daughter, she goes, she didn't get my height, but <laughs> she's kind of short. But um, I can look at different things that she has that have been given to her by my side of the family. And so we resemble them. So as a direct child of God with a pure spirit, Adam had no experience of evil. He resembled God in that. Mm -hmm. He didn't know about sin or the separation from God. He was clothed in righteousness. He had the mind of God, and Adam was even intelligent enough to name all the animals. And you know, the names have stuck for 6,000 6, years. The names that Adam gave to the animals are still there. And think about it, isn't that amazing? A turtle's still a turtle, or a bunny rabbit's still a bunny rabbit. And he named them back then, and it hasn't changed. And then God created a wife for Adam. And before the calamity recorded in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve lived very secure lives. They were clothed with righteousness. They couldn't think an evil thought. They didn't know what an evil thought was. They didn't know anything about evil. It's like the little toddler that escapes from your house. All they've got on is a diaper. And they're just running around and like, blah. Well, they're not going to do that when they're teenagers. Mostly, most likely not, okay? Because why? Because they've got a little bit of knowledge behind them. Adam and Eve were just innocent. They didn't know anything about evil. They trusted the serpent when they were talking. I'm sure other animals talked back then because it didn't seem unusual to talk to a serpent. And then the serpent seduced Eve into thinking she was missing out on something that God was withholding from him. So we've got a talking serpent. We've got Adam and Eve clothed in righteousness. We've got a serpent who sees an end to this. He sees a way to get them. He says, God's withholding from you, but you can be like God. You can know the difference between good and evil. Blessing and calamity. The only problem was that God had the wisdom to discern good from evil. They didn't have any wisdom. They were little. I, I look at our cat. Our cat was trying to get out of the house and he's investigating. He, he sees the doorknob and he could stand on the TV stand and he was reaching. I've got pictures of this last night. He's reaching around the doorknob and, and I know his mind is working. I know I've seen them turn this and I can just try to figure out. But see, he doesn't have the wisdom to know that he can't do it with his tiny paws. So he'll probably keep trying again on that. But they don't have, Adam and Eve didn't have the wisdom that God had. Because God said, avoid evil. If you, if you disobey me, then there's going to be spiritual death. There's going to be death. You shall die. Mm -hmm. But they were like, huh? You know, what's death? What's that? Because they hadn't seen it. But it's very important to know that God had the wisdom. And he knew how to handle evil correctly, which was to announce it, and then to deal with it. Adam and Eve didn't have that resource. All they did was just they blind, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess, I guess God is trying to withhold from us. They didn't stop and think about it because they had no experience of evil. They couldn't stop to think that maybe what God said was correctly. And what we do when we come into the kingdom of God is we have to learn the wisdom that God has. When we become born again, 
everything is dropped off of us. God remembers our sins no more, but now we have to learn how to walk in the wisdom that God has. So that's what we're doing the rest of our Christian life is we're learning how to get wisdom because we don't have it. And we grow from that little baby stage, we grow to a toddler, and then on and on and on. So, you know, we all know the story. When they ate the fruit, God, Adam and Eve obtained the information of good and evil and the experience of good and evil, but they lacked the wisdom to know what to do. It had to be the saddest moment in our history was that day. And I couldn't think of anything that would be worse in our in the history of mankind than the day that Adam and Eve disobeyed God because it affected everybody. We were all born with, with a broken, we were all born broken. So they lost their cover, was the first thing. The eyes of their heart were open. And now that, now that they weren't clothed with righteousness, they noticed that they were naked. God said to Adam in Genesis 3.11, and I'm just paraphrasing, where are you, Adam? Well, God knew where he was. That was kind of a rhetorical question. He wasn't asking. When God asks us questions, it's not because God needs to know answers. It's because we need to know what the answer is. So what he said was, where are you, Adam? And it, it paraphrased, it says, what happened to your image, Adam? You see yourself differently. Why are you hiding from me? Why, do, why are we hiding when we feel shame? Why do we take that piece of us that's already been forgiven and we still feel shame over that? We still feel broken over that. We still wish we hadn't have done it. And you can't go back. I mean, we scramble eggs every morning. I can't unscramble it. Once it's scrambled, it's, it's there. We can't unscramble these. We can't go back and fix our history. I'd love to go back and fix some things that I've done, but we can't do it. The blood of Jesus has covered it, and that's good enough for me. Amen? Amen. I can't just keep bringing it up. But Matthew Henry's commentary on the, uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, it says, The immediate consequence of the transgression, shame and fear seized the criminals. They came into the world along with sin, and they still attended. They fell under strong conviction. The eyes of them both were open, not the eyes of the body, but the eyes of their consciences were open, and their hearts smote them for what they had done. Now when it was too late, they saw the folly of what they had done. They were shamed before God and the angels. Now we see here, first at First, what a dishonor and disquietment sin is. It makes mischief whenever it is admitted, sets men against themselves, disturbs peace, and destroys all their comfort. Sooner or later, it will have shame, either the shame of true repentance, which ends in glory, or that shame and everlasting contempt to which the wicked shall rise at the great day. See, there's a good shame and there's a bad shame. The good shame causes you to run to the cross. Lord, I blew it. I wished I hadn't have said that. Please forgive me. That's a good shame. We run to the cross. We ask God to forgive us. And does he say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to forgive you yet. No, it happens immediately. He's forgiven us. Then what we do is we get up from our 
prayer. Hopefully we go make it right if we've hurt somebody else and, and it's able, we're able to do that. And then either that person brings it up or we have it in our mind what we did. Especially like if you do something with your kids and I would say that that would probably be the number one thing. Like you said that harsh word and that would be like 50 years ago for most of us because we're older. You know, and the kids start to like go drift off course and we sometimes blame ourselves for that one incident with the harsh word but see God's already forgiven it he's covered it with the blood and now we've got a, a victim and I, I've said this probably maybe too much but we have a victim society out there everybody's pointing blame at their parents even though they're 40, 50, 60 years old, they still go back and blame their parents for mistakes when they've had well, had well enough time to rectify what was done. Nobody's a perfect parent. We all make mistakes. Nobody's a perfect person. We all make mistakes. But the, the good thing is true shame will get you to the cross so you can get that off your spirit and you won't have to feel like you're responsible. Anybody in here, don't raise your hand feel like if something goes wrong that you're always the one responsible for it even though you've never had you've never had anything to do with that why because you've got this shame based personality that wants to point a finger at you and tell you you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong what's wrong with you you're abnormal why are you doing that why did you say that and you've got these things in your head so you try to cover it all the time you try to ignore it or do you just try to get in agreement with it? Some of you just get in agreement with it. Yeah, I am, a, I'm, I am such a bad person, and I shouldn't have done that, and I wished I hadn't. And, and, you know, on the outside, you're smiling. On the inside, you're dying. Because you're allowing the devil just to eat away at the inside of you and chip and, and hurt your self-esteem. And God's saying, I went to the cross so you could be free. How it grieves the heart of God when he sees the devil running roughshod over our lives. When his son, Jesus, paid such a high price for us to have freedom. So when Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God immediately changed. And it changed for everybody after Adam and Eve. And instead of going toward him, they ran away from him. That's another problem with shame is instead of going toward God, People with real shame run away from God because they don't feel like they're good enough. Well, newsflash, none of us are good enough. Okay, so if none of us are good enough, then humanity's in a huge problem, isn't it? Well, none, none of us are good enough. No, but the Christ in us is good enough for any problem. Amen? They tried to fix their own nakedness by making clothes out of fig leaves and trying to hide from God. Well, if you know anything about a fig leaf, it starts out nice and luxurious, and as it dries out, it kind of shrinks. So it was a poor choice to begin with. We make poor choices trying to cover this up in our lives. We make poor choices. We try to isolate ourselves. We stay away from maybe people that can help us to walk things, to get to a better place. Why? Because we're ashamed. We don't want to tell people. Unhealthy shame tries to make you hide. It makes you hide from your problems. It makes you try to cover up 
the guilt of it when you don't really, you don't have to do that. Christ has already paid the price. Now, if you're still in sin, then you need to still go to the cross. I let that shame send some conviction to you so that you can get it off of you. But once you ask God to forgive you, it's done. It's a done deal. You don't have to carry the shame anymore. The weight of the shame, we're supposed to have the weight of his glory on our, on our, on our being, on our spirit. It's the weight of, our, of his glory that's supposed to bow us down. Not the weight of our shame. It says a good word lifts people up. But anxiety in the heart weighs a man down. Shame brings anxiety, brings stress. Because we just don't want to be found out. We don't want to be outed by anybody. You know, we're afraid of people that if they ever found out our past, if they ever found out what we did, if they ever found out who we are, that's all a lie from the devil. So if you're a really bad person, just make changes. Make yourself a better person. God's give you the grace to do it. In the new covenant relationship, God not only wants to restore our image, but he intended to take away your shame. He wants to restore us. He wants to give us that garment of righteousness. It's possible to live shame-free. It's possible. And if you have a real problem with guilt and condemnation, that should be good news to you this morning. Because it is possible to live in joy and peace and not have to be... Anybody micromanage, don't raise your hand. You know, everything that you do, you, you go and, you know, like maybe you have a conversation with somebody and then you leave and then you start taking apart everything that you said and say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Oh, why did I say it like that? Oh, well, it's just the devil having, having eating your lunch over, you know, just relax about it. Why? Because what if, the other, what if you have two people in a conversation, they're both doing the same thing? You know, learn to relax a little bit about what you're saying, about what you're doing. It's not that bad. You know, I can't imagine any of you in here saying or doing things that are so shameful and so horrible that you have to pick it apart and say, well, you know, I shouldn't have said that. But then you, on the other hand, you might have the enforcers in your life. Like, you know, my, my mom was like, well, what would people think you know, if they, if they ever saw you, what you did, what would people think? <laughs> I've, I've grown up now, and I realize that people would think nothing of it. Or if they did, that it wouldn't matter because they probably wouldn't be my friends or there probably wouldn't be anybody that would have undue influence over me. But if you've had that in your head, what would people think if they saw you do that or if they heard you do that? Well... I don't know. I can't control what people think. And you can't control what people think. They think what they think. Amen? I mean, what, what, what will people think? I don't know. What will I think? I don't know. Is it important what we think or is it important what God says? We've got to get out of micromanaging because we're so afraid of that shame monster coming on us making us feel like we're less than a person. we got to get out of that. And just, you know, if you have a, if you say something wrong, 
mean, it's all possible because we're all humans, amen? If you say something wrong, just go to the person and apologize. Learn how to apologize. And many times, when I've done that and apologized, I've found out the other person said, well, what did you say? And it's like, well, maybe we should just forget it and move on. <laughs> it's just my shame talking to me. So we, we need to learn how to live shame-free. If we make a mistake, we repent, we move on. If we have an enforcer in our life, we just tell them that it's under the blood and we move on. Amen? That's what Jesus paid the price for so we can have freedom, not so that we can have a shacket in our lives and we can have a little bit of righteousness here and a little bit of us trying to cover it there. He died so we can have total and complete freedom and be shame-free. So now we're going to move on to the leper, another interesting study. The leper must proclaim his uncleanness. The person who was afflicted with leprosy found that their sin was in plain view. It was no longer hidden, and it was on display for all to see. Aubrey's a small town, and I've said this many times. I'm thankful that we were able to come into Aubrey, and that happened. When we started to hear stories about people in Aubrey, we had to do this, because we don't want to hear stories from about people in Aubrey. I'm happy that I don't know, well, I know a little bit about your, your backgrounds as far as what you've told us, but I don't want to know anything. And see, small towns are notorious for being unforgiving and unrelenting. And this is why one of the reasons you should be glad about growth in Aubrey is that the more people, the less people that know your dark history. Because honestly, I don't want to know anything about anybody. Why? Well, because then when you see that person and you go, ooh, former adulterer, ooh, you know, former drug addict, ooh, no. Why? Because at the cross, we've all been made equal. You don't know my past either. And there's nothing in it that's, like, horrible. I was never a drug addict, never. But I was a good sinner, okay? was a good heathen, just like a lot of you. So we're in good company. But one of the problems with a small town is a lot of gossip and a lot of, I mean, you can't make a mistake in a small town, but it, it's not remembered for 15 years after the mistake was made. And I was speaking to somebody the other day and had something against the church. And I said, well, everybody here that did that, that they're all gone now. But see, you can't get it out of the, the mind of remembrance. This is not the same church that it was even five years ago. It's not the same. But you can't convince anybody of that. And so the leper, it says in Leviticus 13.45, it says, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip and shall cry out, unclean, unclean. And that's what I want to get to, is sometimes on the inside we cry out, unclean, unclean, to ourselves. And I know as being molested, it was one of the things that I had trouble getting over with, 
was the effects of the molestation and what it did to my personality and what it did to my, just my inside. And leprosy is a chronic infection which attacks the skin, nerves, and mucous membranes. Victims often lose feeling in their hands and feet. People with leprosy traditionally suffered banishment from families and neighbors. In the Bible, it was a judgment for sin. The priest had to examine the victim and only he could declare the leper clean or unclean. In the Bible, there are instances of lepers crying out to Jesus to be cleansed. So you can have an in inside secret leprosy because you feel abnormal because of things that have happened to you. And so you could be crying unclean, unclean. But the good news is it's not true. When you bowed your knee to Jesus, he washed you clean. But some of you are still carrying around your leper clothes and yelling, unclean, unclean. And it, it's manifested by people who just don't, they don't have a lot of friends. They don't have a good root system. Why? Because they feel unclean. They don't feel like they're worthy. They feel different. That's why when we have a fellowship, don't sit with the same people all the time. Move around. Get to know other people. Why? Because that person might be shy and might not have the ability to, to be bubbly. I know like Barbara is bubbly and perky and friendly and, and fun and, and, you know, it, she comes around, everybody loves her because she's bubbly and, you know, and, and so you don't want to just, and I'm not trying to point her out or the small, small group today. <laughs> a lot of people to point out. But, um, you know, during fellowships and stuff, don't, don't sit with the same people. Because you might have somebody there that feels unclean or feels abnormal and feels unworthy. And if you sit with them and make them part of the group, you coming over there and talking to somebody can mean the, the, a world of difference to somebody that doesn't feel like they're worthy. Start building other relationships in the church. Start building relationships in the community. It says in Matthew Henry, it says, the leper must pronounce himself unclean. He must put himself in the posture of a mourner and cry, unclean, unclean. The leprosy was not, was itself was not a sin, but it was a sad token of God's displeasure and sore affliction to him that was under it. It was a reproach to his name, put a full stop to his business in the world, cut him off from conversation with friends and relations, condemned him to banishment till he was cleansed, shut him out from the sanctuary, and was, in effect, the ruin of all the comfort he could have in this world. And that's exactly, if we've got that kind of a unclean, I'm unclean, that's exactly what happens to us. It cuts us off from people, cuts us off from things. The leper must humble himself under the mighty hand of God, not insisting upon his cleanness when the priest had pronounced him unclean, but justifying God and accepting the punishment of his iniquity. He must signify this by rending his clothes, uncovering his head, and covering his lips, all tokens of shame and confusion of face, and the very significant of that self-loathing and self-abasement, which should fill the hearts of penitents, the language of which is self-judging. 
This we must take to ourselves, the shame that belongs to us and the broken hearts. Call ourselves by our own name, unclean, unclean, heart unclean, life unclean, unclean by original corruption, unclean by actual transgression, unclean, and therefore worthy to be forever excluded from communion with God and all hope of happiness in him. Okay, that's the state we were in until we came to the cross of Christ. The leper must give warning to others to take heed of coming near him. Whenever he went, he must cry to those that he saw at a distance, I am unclean, take heed of touching me. Not that leprosy was touching, but by the touch of the leper, ceremonial uncleanness was contracted. Everyone, therefore, was concerned to avoid it, and the leper himself must give notice of it. Many times those who are full of shame are secretly crying that, I am unclean, I am not unworthy, I am guilty as charged. And these are Christians, and it's a shame. If you want to talk about real shame in the church, it's the Christians that are still crying out, I'm unclean, I'm dirty. Christ has paid the price for all of that. You can be set free from that horrible feeling, and you can be free from that. All the sins, no matter how horrible they were, have been forgiven of everyone in this room. So we don't have to carry that guilt and that shame anymore from it. And then if we really messed up, and I could ask how many have really messed up, all of our hands would go up. Because mm -hmm. all of us have really messed up at one time or another. Now we take our mess ups and we put them in God's hands and say, God, I really messed up at this point. But you're God and you're able to help me to rectify it. You're, help, you're able to help me to get it in the right direction, no matter what it is. See, and that's when God gets glory, is we give it to him. It's like when you've got that ball of yarn knitters that just won't, it just gets tangled. Doesn't it sometimes like get tangled overnight and it seems like it hasn't even been anywhere, but it can get tangled. you got to untangle it. God is an expert at untangling our lives and getting them back in order. Even if it's something we did years ago and we're still feeling the stress of that, give it to God and he'll untangle it for you. Don't try to hide. This is what the, the enemy is so happy when we accommodate him by hiding this stuff. If we trust God and we have faith in God and we give God the bad things that we have done, God will set up, he said, this is what I'm waiting for. So now I can help you to make it right. God's not willing for one to perish, but all to come to repentance. So if you're feeling like, oh, you know, what I did might have really ruined my kid's chance for salvation, give it to God. I've learned how to pray differently for my daughter. Holy Spirit, work on the inside of her. Takes the pressure off of me having to do it again. You can still, you can pray for your kids. You can pray for whatever it was if you hurt somebody in the community or the church or wherever. You just give it to God and say, God, I can't fix it. As a matter of fact, because I tried to fix it, I made a bigger mess. And God will say, okay, well, this is what you need to do. And he'll take those things and he'll unravel it if we trust him and obey. Amen. We don't have to hide. You don't have to feel guilty all the time. For some of you, it might be normal that you feel guilty all the time. 
Christ took our guilt and our shame on the cross. Time that confusion comes to keep you submitted to guilty behavior, behaviors so it'll stunt your spiritual growth. Don't feel guilty all the time. Well, that's easier said than done. Not coming from me because I was one that felt guilty all the time until I got revelation that I didn't have to do that anymore. I spent a little bit of time writing, I am normal, I am normal, I am normal. So you didn't put to death these things and stop walking around feeling guilty like you're taking up space on the planet. You're taking up valuable space on the planet because God has put you here for a reason. And if the devil can keep you bound, if he can keep you on focused on all the bad, shameful things that you've done, then he's won the war with you. If you feel guilty, then he knows that you won't pursue your dreams in God because you'll feel guilty about it. Well, if you're such a good Christian, well, you, you wouldn't have said that. Look at you ruined their lives. No, you haven't ruined anything. It's the devil who's ruined it. It's not you. He wants to feel like your dreams are unattainable, that you should just accept things the way they are because you did it. After all, you know, you made your bed. Well, now you lie in it. He wants you to feel like you're less than everybody else, and you're not. None of you are. He wants you to believe that the desires of freedom, well-being, hope, and the resolution of nagging issues in your life are selfish and that you're ungrateful for what little you, relief you can get. You can have it all. You can have it all this morning if you just leave it at the altar. The devil plays such terrible tricks on your minds that you can think your needs are unimportant or that you're being unreasonably harsh and demanding. He lets you know that you, you because you're so abnormal, you should just accept this. Just This is the way it is. If you've ever said those things, if you've ever heard those things, slap that person into reality and bring them to the cross and say, look, you're a blood-bought child of God. Stop listening to the devil and listen to God. So on the heels of that, we're going to talk about the self-righteous who thinks things closed already. So we kind of we're kind of switching gears to the third to the third one. This is what God thinks of our efforts to clothe ourselves. God doesn't think much of it. Okay, and we're going to go to Matthew 22, 9 through 14. And this is the, the wedding supper where the, the servant went out and he got them from the highways and the byways and he brought them in. So I'm going to pick it up in um, verse 9, Matthew 22, 9. It says, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendant, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we know that the wedding 
clothes were the robes of righteousness. And this person tried to sneak in on their own goodwill. See, there's some people that should feel shame that don't. So now if you have a shame-based personality, don't say, oh, that, I knew that was me, I knew it was me. No, it's not you. The person who puts on his garment of pride and works and says it was good enough, well, that's good enough for God. I'm just going to go in there. No, God wants us to repent, to have a tender heart. Good works won't cleanse the shame. Good, you know, if you've got a million dollars, that's not going to cleanse the shame. You know, if you're some important person in the church, that's not going to cleanse the shame. The only thing that cleanses your shame is the blood of Jesus. In order to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb, we all have to come the same way. And that's putting on the robe of righteousness that God gave us when we got born again. We resist God's gracious gift if we continue to condemn ourselves for sins that have already been forgiven. We resist the grace of God. I want to read 1 John 3, 20 and 21, and it's, I've got the commentary from Jimmy Swigert inside of this, so I'm going to stop while I read it. So the verse starts out, For if our heart condemns us, and then the commentary says, Our failures in duty of service rise up before us, and our hearts condemn us. Okay, our failures rise up. If our hearts condemn us, if our failures condemn us, the good news is, God is greater than our heart. Mm -hmm. And it says, in, the commentary says, the worst in us is known to God, and he still cares for us and desires us. Our discovery has been an open secret to him all along. We're not a surprise to God. Anything we do, it's not a surprise to God. That's why he sent Jesus when you miss it, when you sin, just remind yourself, this is why God sent Jesus to the earth. Amen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. This presents God alone, knowing our hearts. This is the true test of a man. Verse 23, Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, and in the, in the commentary it says, does not claim sinless perfection, but represents the heart attitude of a saint that, so far as he knows, he has no unconfessed sin in his life. That's important, unconfessed. Unconfessed sin. The sins you've already confessed with, the sins you've already cried over, the sins you've already asked God to forgive you of, God has wiped them off of your slate. The blood of Jesus has wiped it clean. But if you have unconfessed sin, you need to confess it and get it wiped. So as far as he knows, and I like that part, represents the heart attitude of a saint that so far as he knows, he's got no unconfessed sin. He's got no unconfessed sin in his life, as far as he knows. As far as we know, we've got no unconfessed sin. I think God and I are okay. I don't have anything unconfessed. 
So how do we know that? Well, we know if we get a prompting by the Holy Spirit that we've done something, we need to take it to the altar right then. Okay, so the rest of the verse is then we have confidence toward God implies no condemnation. So I'm going to read those two verses again without the commentary. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence towards God. And this is why the enemy works so hard in this area to keep you in shame. Because if your heart condemns you not, then you have confidence towards God. But if you're feeling a little shaky and a little insecure, you're not going to go to God. You're going to just try to run and try to hide. Once we have confessed our sin, we must receive the cleansing for that sin. You say, well, I've already received it. Well, are you still bringing it up in yourself? Are you still feeling sorry for it? Well, then you haven't received the complete covering for it. There's a complete and total restoration that God has. If God doesn't remember your sin, why should we keep remembering it? And why should you allow other people to keep throwing it up in your face if that happens? Job 8, 20 and 22 says, Behold, God will not reject the blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Psalm 69.7, it refers to Jesus. It, Psalm 69.7 says, Because for your sake I bore a reproach, shame has covered my face. Jesus bore it on the cross. It says he endured the shame. Here we are in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised the shame. He despised the shame of the cross. He despised it. But he did it for us so that we could live shame-free. Amen. What a Savior we have. Every week we're discovering so much more about what a, what a Savior that we really serve, a Savior that really loves us. And one of God's greatest gifts for us is the ability to live free from guilt. Isn't it nice to live free from guilt? You don't have to carry it around feeling like you're abnormal or, you know, you're, you're such a bad person. God's made you free from that. He says, Verily, verily, in Mark 10, 15, I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. God's desire is for us to become like little children. I mean, not childish, because kids can get on your nerves, right? <laughs> not childish, but childlike. In other words, innocent. We can live life innocently. Normal little children have, are carefree, and they have joy. They're not worried about anything. You know, unless they've had those worries put on them by, by, by an adult. You know, I look at my cats. 
They're not worried. My cat was sitting there staring at the rat box for like an hour the other day. And Clarence goes, well, why is he doing that? And I said, well, what's he going to do? Our taxes? Is he going to go over and clean the church? I mean, what does a cat have to do but stare at a rat box and maybe hope something comes out or goes in? He sat there for a solid hour staring at it. Why do they do that? Why do kids do what they do? Well, because they're, they, they've got their they're children. They're, they're carefree. They're childlike. They have joy. And so should we. Because we've been, Jesus paid the price for us to have that joy. It says in Romans 10, 11, the scripture says, No man who believes in him will ever be put to shame or be disappointed. Let's believe in him all the way today and let him take that shame from us. He wants to remove your shame. He wants to restore the lost innocence. And he wants to restore the time from you. It says in Joel 2, 25 and 27, I will restore or replace for years you the years the locust has eaten. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. And you shall know, understand, and realize that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord your God, and there is none else. My people shall never be put to shame. Never, ever be put to shame. Isaiah 54, 4. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be confounded and depressed. For you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and you shall not seriously remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. It's time to put on that garment of praise. Amen? It's time to let it go. If you've got shame things this morning, it's time to let it go. Stop hiding. Stop calling yourself unclean. Stop calling yourself abnormal. Stop calling yourself unwanted. Stop calling yourself an idiot. Stop calling yourself whatever you're calling yourself. That is not what God is calling you. Stop. God has adopted you into his family, and you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Cast off the feeble attempt to hide your shame and let God clothe you with his righteousness. Amen? It says in Job 29, 13, and 14, The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. In Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God wants to take that shame and remove it from you. He wants to show you when you get those thoughts I've told you this before with different things. Just flick them off and say, no, not today. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Amen. You may not even feel like it. It might be funny. It might be like that tooth coming out. And then you're going like, oh, I didn't realize it hurt so much. And it takes you a while to get used to living shame-free. But it's the best way to go. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor, you come up and I want to just pray for everybody. Heavenly Father, we're just thankful for our, the eyes of our understanding to be open. Father, we're just thanking you this morning that we can take our, our shame 
Father, for the things that we've done, Lord, the things that we've asked for you to forgive us for, maybe it seems like a thousand times and we still can't get free from it. Father, we declare freedom now in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you that you said whoever we forgive is also, they're also, they're forgiven. Their sins are remitted. So, Father, I forgive all of these people, all of the people who are watching and listening later on. I forgive them in the name of Jesus. Father, you remit their sins. And, Father God, you take the blood of Jesus and you cover that area and you remove their shame from them in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you that each one gets a picture of a robe of righteousness. Father God, I thank you that they step out in what you've called them to do. And Lord, that they would just give you praise all the days of their life. In Jesus' name, amen.